0: podcast is a conduit of hope, safety, and trust. And our purpose and vision for our lives is to be in service to others and to support them in understanding that they matter. Through open dialogue and conversation, through sharing ourselves, our lives, insights, perspectives, and experiences, we will offer solutions for any challenges or adversities you may be faced with. And we want you to know that you can come to us for support, guidance, and inspiration.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Laguna View Detox, a state of the art substance abuse and alcohol detox and residential program. We are not affiliated with any 12-step program. If you or a loved one is suffering from addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you need detox or residential treatment from drugs and alcohol, please contact 888-448-1884 to speak with a specialist. And now, with the Recovery Media Podcast, your hosts, Jim Grant and Lewis Iacona.
0: Welcome to Recovery Media Podcast. Jim Grant and Lewis are here with you once again, and we're very excited to introduce our guest, and we'll meet him soon, and his name is Ray Ortiz. He's a friend, a former colleague, a poker buddy, a uh, fantasy footballer. Um, actually, Lewis and Ray don't even know you guys are in the same league. So uh, nice. you guys uh, you guys know each other as, uh, as uh, competitors in fantasy football. And uh, me and Ray go way back in terms of uh, working for Outreach House 2 in Brentwood, New York the one thing we had in common is we we loved our job we loved we loved helping the kids and ray is very passionate about about being in service and being um you know a a source a a a uh supporter of of people in recovery so really looking forward to hearing his story and you know more importantly though ray is a father of two 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 beautiful girls a five-year-old daughter who's gonna be sick soon, right? Yeah. And and how old is is uh your beautiful Lily? Uh my
2: oldest is 14 and she'll be uh she'll be entering the tenth oh grade God. soon.
0: Wow. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe that. Yeah. That was amazing. So uh I remember her when she was uh when she Brooklyn's was four. age.
2: Younger than Brooklyn's yeah. age, you remember her? Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. of course. That's it. That's more, more than four. So yeah, so uh, Ray's also a retired military army, so maybe we can get some uh, crazy uh, army stories. Who knows? And uh, he's been in the substance abuse field for over thirty years. And Ray started working at outreach uh, after you after you were a resident there and graduated. So it's pretty cool. We have uh, three generations of uh, of outreachers, and I appreciate you being here. So you know, why don't you tell us? Why you? Uh, why you agreed to be here, and and tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Oh, well, uh, thanks a lot, guys, for having me. Um, I'm excited about this. It's been a while since I've actually talked about me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I get very excited about the history of outreach and my connection to it, um, because it was so early in my life. Um, You know, I was growing up in Brooklyn and the Bronx, back and forth with my parents and uh, the youngest of five siblings. And I saw a lot as a kid, uh, which means you get in trouble a lot as a kid. Um, The addiction piece really didn't um, come into play until I learned to understand what it was. As a 10 and 11 and 12 year old kid, none of us know what is really going on around us. We're just trying to have fun and survive um although it was right in my face addiction was right there with my uh my biological father with his alcoholism and abuse and my siblings unfortunately (laughs) early 80s uh, i think everybody was using drugs and cocaine and i'm i'm just the young kid watching my siblings come home uh after being out all night so how it it was a slow process but um as a young kid, you explore, you 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 see things, you run from things, and I think uh, my first experience with running from anything, as far as feelings and stuff, and introducing myself to substances, was about eleven and twelve when I didn't want to be home anymore, and naturally on the street, everybody's doing all these substances, and 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 you're thinking your siblings do it, then it's okay. Um, so I was introduced to it uh, because I was just trying to run. I don't know from what, but running is really sometimes the first step to uh, living a life in denial. But being 12 and 13, uh, you make really poor choices. And I had uh, made some mistakes. And um, Outreach House was just opening their doors in 1983, 84. And um, I was an altar boy for um blessed sacrament and um i played little league in my neighborhood team which father costello the founder of outreach uh was involved in trying to get kids he was looking to fill those beds with kids that needed help um of course as kids we don't think we have a problem we 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 hear people trying to help us and we shoo them away and unfortunately we sometimes throw rocks at them but uh father costello was a persistent presence at Highland Park in Brooklyn. And uh, uh, I had gotten into some trouble with the law. And I was in really big trouble, actually. Uh, and it was Father Costello who actually came to my rescue with my mom. And they they actually bailed me out of jail. But the condition was that I would be a new resident at the new house at Outreach in, in Ridgewood. So uh, to me, it was a form of uh of being in jail, because you weren't allowed to do anything. Uh, but the stories and horrors of real jail scared me enough to go, I'm gonna try this instead. So uh, and I'm glad I did. I think it was the greatest decision I ever made as a young adult. Because although those first few months were very difficult, again, as a kid, we don't know what we're doing. But the idea of therapy, sobriety, accountability, it took a long time to understand it, but as I look at back on my life today, it was a great platform for who I am today, what I believe in today, and how I raise my kids. But, uh, you know, the whole outreach experience was a very uh, difficult one at first. Um, and learning learning uh, to trust a system that really was a outreach house was, was an experiment. They had no idea this was going to work. But the therapeutic process and learning to trust in someone else wow. who is wanting to help you, wanted to help my family, uh, other kids. And it was really my first experience with a, a, a white kid, a white kid who loves rock and roll, which I never heard rock and roll in my neighborhood. I don't know. I didn't know who ACDC was. <laughs> I didn't know. Uh, I think it's 92.7. Rock and roll. What is that? But in Outreach House as a kid, we had to share the radio. Every day was a different type of music. So Tuesdays was rock and roll, and I just couldn't I couldn't handle it. <laughs> I think back then it was disco. That's what I felt, and, about, that's
0: what I felt about rap.
2: <laughs> so and that's just an example. Um, I may be talking about music, but that also plays into the therapeutic process, learning to listen, having someone actually listen to you and understand. Having a kid from Rochester with the same type of feelings and problems as I in Brooklyn, and that just because I'm from Brooklyn and you're from Rochester doesn't mean we're that different. So it was learning. So, hey,
3: hey, Ray, I just want to, I just want to stop you and answer a question, and then we'll continue sure. on. So, I, I'm just so curious since I was a resident in outreach um, many years later and out in Long Island in 2004. Uh, you know, and we shared prior to us uh, pressing record on this podcast to what my experience was. What was what was a day like? You know, what was different maybe from the you know 2004? Like how, you know, you said it was the early one of the earlier classes of of outreach, right? Maybe even one of the first ones. I don't know. What was the day like there?
2: Well, I was the fifth resident ever. I, my number was zero mm. zero 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 five. So there was was seven of us that opened the doors, seven only. And I'm telling you, we were all from different backgrounds and we had eight counselors like Jim. So take eight (laughs) Jim Grants, all right? Wow, yeah. And that was our staff. Eight, and it was, we couldn't breathe. Everything was severe accountability. Um, You know, there was a severe foot in your ass throughout the whole day okay <laughs> waiting online no talking uh writing down your feelings um, absolutely no contact with the opposite sex for the first 60 days you can only speak uh, really in groups and in formats and uh it was really like I don't want no to very very it was very intimidating but then they definitely instilled a fear of what else? could happen if we're not here. And specifically for me and about five other guys, it was this or jail, because the charges were so severe. And they really scared you. I mean, they would get in your face, they would scream and yell. And you know, a lot of people might think these days that, that was a, that is abuse, but I know it, it's what we needed. I know that it was the wake up call we needed because the door was always open for you to leave. So if it's that bad for you, you leave. You walk out and you're forced to face your own consequences. But Outreach House wasn't perfect in the beginning, but the raw beginnings had the right idea. Hold young people accountable. Help them through the process. Help them understand, you know, right from wrong. Help them try and understand who you are as a young adult. Because as a young adult, I mean, there are people 20 years old, they don't know who they are. But because they're in that environment of constant accountability and caring and the support system was extreme. I might say there was eight Jim Grants there, but there was also eight people who were there to pick you up, patch you up, talk to you at two o'clock in the morning when you wanted to leave. There was... There was consequences for everything we did because in life that's just what it is. We have consequences right, for everything right. we do.
0: Right? Correct me if I'm wrong. The the history of, of of outreach was based off of an adult model, correct? Yes. So that was the whole that was the whole hardcore in your face consequences mm-hmm. for your actions, structure, discipline. And how old, uh, how long was the program when you were in it? Uh,
2: it was originally six months. But um, even our first graduate, it took about 10 months to a year. So the program was, oh. was set for six months. But if you needed more time, they kept you. Like me, I needed that's, a year. Uh, that's,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because when I started in 97, it was an 18 month program. And some of the some of the kids were there longer. And now they the the last five years or so, maybe even 10 years, maybe it's five to eight years. It's back to a six, six to to nine month program. But, yeah, back back when I started and I forget for how long it was, uh, you know, you were talking 18 to, you know, sometimes 20, 22 months. And then they brought it down to 12 to 18.
3: Yeah, that's when How I was, old was there. How it for you, Louis? 12 to
0: 18. It was 12
3: it was 12 to 18. Um, you know, depending okay. on circumstances, I think maybe rarely was there somebody there over 18 months, but I remember there being people there for 14, 15. I think I completed in 13. 13 months I was there at Outreach. So Ray, mm-hmm. so you're there, you're you're the, you know, the first founding class of of Outreach House too. Um one of the things that that you're mentioning and you're talking about is the structure, right? I yep. think that was really what was the most important piece for me at Outreach. Coming from a family of four, um, well, four children, and not having the consequence or needing to take responsibility at home gave me the open chance to take. To, to you know, to to stray right um, and avoid that, and continue to get into trouble. So when I went to outreach, once I settled in there, I think kids like you and I, we had the ability to adapt and realize, okay, we need to really change to get through this, right? right. Although we may have gone astray after, it just that piece gives us that that teaching lesson, right? And, for you know, I truly believe that every child is craving the attention of structure. They're craving that. It's just that they don't know how to explain that. They don't know how to say that, nor would they make the connection in their brain. As you said, an 11-, 12-, 13-year-old, you don't know what's going on. You're not aware of responsibility. You're just going through. You're, you're living. You're having fun. You're you're being a kid, right? right. So. I think the opportunity for us was to give us a pause in our life and really giving give us that growing up process that we needed because there is immature 11, 12, 13 year olds, and there's mature ones. and the mature ones are more, you know, on the right path, right? They're doing well in school. They're thinking about their future. And I think it's safe to say that at that point, we kind of are just like dealing with what's right in front of us.
2: Definitely. I think that's a great point because um, it just just provides a foundation and it'll be up to you what you're going to do with that. So, of course, they can provide the tools for us, but it really is up to the, the young adult to make a commitment. And at that age, it's extremely hard to make a commitment to anything. But when you're surrounded with others who are walking the same path and at outreach, it really it really was a supportive environment, not just the individual piece, but how they included the family. If there was family available to support the cause, they integrated the family part. Now a lot of people weren't doing that in the early uh nineties. Uh you know, the multis and how important that is. Even if your cousin is the only one that will support you, they invited the cousin over. Um It just was very important to give that opportunity to a young adult to see if they can make that decision. And if they can't make that decision, well, then let's work on having that young adult get to that point. And that was the repetitious uh, message at Outreach, which is something I, I really believed in. I don't believe in giving up on any kid. I don't care what they do, what they say or where they came from. The model was we don't give up on you, even when you give up on yourself. And then when you when you bump into a, a, a coworker who has that same style and belief, you start becoming a bit of a family yourself in the in the staff unit. Um, there's a lot of coming and going with the staff. But as far as the clients, the clients see that change too. real life changes. You know, they get close to a counselor, they leave. They have to adapt and being in that safe environment of support uh i i i i've worked at a lot of places phoenix house daytop um outreach house really had the right idea uh, mm-hmm. to instill the the, the the whole surrounding supportive piece and addiction uh you know was the main reason why this all got uh, got started but it integrated into mental health and other issues that young adults were facing uh, sexual abuse and, and alienating and uh, you know sexual orientation. All, all of that was something that young adults, they look and they have no clue how to handle it. And um, that's why I think the structure, as you mentioned before, structure was key. Uh, the structure for me was definitely key because uh, when I joined the military uh, at 19, when someone got in my face and yelled at me and took my uh, my pictures and on them, I, I I actually could handle it because uh, I, I, I had an idea of how to control my emotions up until the point where I found it was appropriate to have a place to do it because uh, you, you can't yell at a drill sergeant. You know, you can't do anything like that. I can't walk out the door in the army and split and come back in two days. So there was a lot of... of, of self-discipline and uh, the the knowledge to know what a commitment actually is. And, you know, not everybody gets it. Unfortunately, there's always one or two out of 10 that fall through the cracks and uh, they have to hit a harder wall. But uh, if we can reach one out of 10 kids, it's better than none. Um, so, you know, commitment and foundation is, is very important with the whole substance abuse piece and look how things are these days where, I mean, is it me or it's just gotten really bad? I mean, the the fatalities are younger. At Outreach House, in fact, I look over to my mirror to my left. I have uh, the prayer cards from uh, the funerals I've attended yes. from Outreach Kids. I have 87 of them. You know, I have a personal connection there. Uh, I lost my sister to... Th- the disease. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just uh, me, my sister, addiction and uh, alcoholism was part of my family, who we were. And I had no idea until I left Outreach. Even when I graduated, I really didn't have a hold on it until I went out and flew on my own, my own wings to see what was going on in the real world as a sober young adult, which there was no room for sober young adults. <laughs> a lot of outreach kids will will walk out of there and 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 they're lost. And that and that's another thing that outreach did well. The aftercare program, the, the ability to stay connected as a family and come back for Thanksgiving. Be part of something special, be part of a family.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by the Long Island Coalition Against Bullying. The LICAB has quickly emerged as a pioneer organization fiercely advocating for children and families impacted by bullying and proudly working with many Long Island schools and organizations to maintain and enhance their bullying prevention curriculums. A victim of bullying himself, Joseph A. Salomon is the founder and executive director of the LICAB and has a simple vision for the organization, to reach as many children and families experiencing bullying as possible. For more information on how you can become involved with the LICAB, please visit www.licab.org. The Long Island Coalition Against Bullying is a federally recognized 501c nonprofit charitable organization dedicated for the emphasis and importance of bullying-free communities on Long Island through education, increased awareness, and therapeutic outlets.
3: You've had a ton of experience working in the field And also being a resident, I just think that's absolutely amazing. Why don't you tell us where, you know, where things go after your time there? I think you said you were there for eight or 10 months and then, you know, you transition back, right? Where do you transition back?
2: Uh, That was a difficult process. I remember it like yesterday. Uh, My my parents, my mother, uh, uh, even when I got out of treatment and you would think, You know everyone's proud of me and they'll do anything for me and they'll give me rides to to sessions my mother told me to take the bus
3: to Mm. session best best (laughs) thing she ever did for you
2: and i looked at her like okay you know what i you can't argue with my mom but like it was pretty rough like she was she didn't no free lunch my mom really was a strong advocate of that so learning to take the bus in long island it's not like taking the bus in brooklyn So that responsibility that I learned at Outreach really came into play every day for the first, I got to say, five years. And I mean every day. And just remembering how important it was to get your bed done on time, to get to breakfast on time, to have your shoes lined up correctly, your clothes ready the night before. Um, Your whole thought process is to prepare so that you can have the best day possible because no no day is perfect. You're gonna hit obstacles, you're gonna have some lows and to be prepared really is half the battle, especially Mm -hmm. as a 19 year old kid out there. So I was very consistent with my aftercare sessions. I was very confused and lost in high school, 11th and 12th grades as a sober kid. I was the only sober kid on my football team I was the only sober kid on my baseball team. And I mean only. Usually you would think teams are made up of jocks, smarty pants, bookworms, and a couple of nerds. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even find a nerd to associate (laughs) with. That's how lonely it was to be sober because everybody was smoking marijuana and it was okay. Marijuana is okay and drinking some beers after practice is okay. I couldn't hang out too long. After a couple of minutes, I had to make excuses up of why I had to leave. And, um, we're not supposed to have relationships the f- the first, uh, few months or a year after treatment, but it didn't work that way for me. I actually got involved with a r- very nice young girl who kept me away from those situations. And then I had a long relationship that helped me, uh, it helped me mature because, uh, I wasn't the most honest kid growing up, and uh, you know, I was learning how to treat a woman the way they should be treated because I was respecting myself a, a lot more before I went to our than before I went to outreach. So those young adult struggles and um, times where people may fall and relapse, I think I was very lucky to have the support of outreach. Outreach allowed me to come back every weekend, no matter what. I could sleep over. I could call the overnight staff. Um, I had Father Costello's rectory number. There was just avenues uh, of support, which uh, I'm sure they still do today. Uh, Maybe not to that extent of having the priest's number, but the idea that you can call the facility at two in the morning, there's someone working there. There's an overnight counselor there. And they take a few minutes and they talk to you. And if you're still struggling, they they steer you in the right direction. They also uh, provided uh, the idea of having a strong support system outside of that because outreach won't always be there every time you need it. You have to uh, create your own support system as a young adult. Um, my mother and my my immediate family didn't know the concept of sobriety. They think you're sober, you're sober, you're fixed. And you should do better for the rest of your life. You need your family. But my family couldn't understand the the process. So it was very important for me to have those outlets like outreach, a support system, a counselor, um, and some positive friends, which was really hard to do. And I think that helped me make a decision to join the military. Uh, because it was getting hard for me to yeah. uh, be around young adults and not party and not have a beer, of course. And, you know, so uh, I, I was that, saying,
3: that's that's you know, I, I relate with that f- from from a resident standpoint. You know, I transitioned from outreach right back to high school, right back to senior year of high school, and when I tell you, at, my my district was was uh, they had to provide a bus, right from outreach to school. My parents paid taxes in Massapequa and that's what they figured out. So every morning I would get a short bus by myself from outreach back to high school. And I love the idea. I really do because it still made me accountable. I still had to show up. But when I walked back into that school, that reputation jacket, I put right back on because it was, it was just a difficult situation to acclimate to, right? Yeah. Um, my parents also didn't do some of the things that that your that your mom did. They didn't, you know, I would say, I grew up in an affluential area in Long Island. They provided the transportation. They helped me in, in certain ways. And that's something that I tell people often about my story, which that was a mistake, was that those, you know, I wasn't on my own. I think that society has gotten further and further away from kind of that kick in the ass mentality that let's be like, you know, okay, 13, 14, 15, but they're exposed to all these drugs and and social medias and media and things that are going on. You can't expect them not to grow up quickly. I think kids grow up more uh, quicker today than they did when you and Jim were growing up because of all the things. So uh, I I talk and I, I, I help families manage what is the right next step. And I t- often I bring the parents back to how they grew up, and I say, "Were you eating t- dinner around the table? Where did you have to figure out your own transportation? When were you out of the home? 18, 19, 20 years old? Now we're seeing kids being kept in the house till they're 30 years old. <laughs> the parents are doing a disservice. Yeah. I think most importantly, what I hope everybody's learning from this is, is that it's okay to uh, consequence your children. It's okay to not give them everything to make sure that they earn it, right? Um, That's what I hope that people are going to take from this is, you know, if there's an adolescent that happens to be listening to this podcast, that's awesome. I love that. And I hope they understand that we're here to help them. But more importantly, what I believe this resource of outreach and, you know, the experience that you're giving everybody and, and my past and Jim's past is really for the parent, the parent listeners to understand that, it's it's okay to 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 seek help for your adolescent it's okay to for them to see you as the parent and the disciplinarian
0: right it's an interesting it's an interesting argument and of course you know you both know I'm from the old school like ray they knew they knew that me and you couldn't speaking of adapt couldn't adapt to the new softer way that client friendly you know, kind of friendly mentality and come from. Um, though listening to you guys from a from an outside point of view, at least at least allowing myself to to look at it from that. Yes, I you, and of course you both know I believe in that old school. I believe in discipline and structure and, and all of what you're mentioning. There is there is a balance because ultimately getting back to outreach outreach's model being from an adult model the first start the first minor you know individual changes throughout the the years when it started occurring was to take into consideration that they still are kids so not to like cookie cutter treat them like adults from the adult model there is that balance and that's where you know even still in terms of whether we're talking about treatment or parents at the home, there is that balance of like, I still do it. I still do it with my four-year-old twins. You know, sometimes I, I have to remember that they're four, but I'm still tough on them. I still, you know, teach them and try try and teach them. They're four, they don't listen too many times. So so I think that that's also, and that's even, even for maybe another conversation some other time, and this is where I had difficulties with not just outreaches changes, but once you start changing something, then you lose the original foundation, and sometimes it erodes from what from what was from that foundation. That was that was the the purpose and effectiveness of what it was, and then sometimes it's it's not even recognizable, you know, at, at a certain point. Yeah, good stuff.
3: Yeah, I think that there is definitely a balance that needs to be found. As Jim and you know, Jim and I have spoken about at, at four and at a younger age, there is less cognitive thought. I believe that come 10, 11, 12, 13, and so on and so forth, you've developed that ability to have that cognitive thought and know right from wrong, right? So I think that's where the balance is. I I mean, the balance is, okay, we're not suggesting that people beat their kids, but setting boundaries and making sure there's consequence in those things is kind of where the healthy balance needs to be found. And outreach definitely continued into a softer way, softer generations. Right. But, um, I mean, overall, I still believe in the program. Right. I think, uh, you know they still they still have the foundational piece the counseling and ultimately that pause for whatever it is now i think it's 6 to 9 months where a child can think about what the consequences are and and kind of take that pause in in a crucial point of life i mean kids are dealing with with so much these days in school and social media and putting out the perf- the perfect you know woman or man and and what you strive to be it, it, it when I was a kid, I didn't see those things. So kids on bikes and being out and I, I didn't, I didn't have that, that, that piece of growing up. So, but sidetracked so a little bit anyways, you know, back to Ray and, and
0: his story. So yeah, I wanted to actually get back, back to Ray, even from the beginning of what you brought up, Ray, you brought up about, about you, the, the alcohol and drug use within your family. So, In terms of the impact on you being the young age that you were, was the was the bigger impact of from your father or from your from your siblings? And how how did that like go into more detail in terms of how you were affected even before you picked up?
2: Well, I think uh, because my biological father was kind of in and out of our lives, um, it wasn't a consistent um issue that I had to deal with. But when my siblings started using, it started um uh, it started uh like that that scary piece of what happens next? What are they doing? Why are they acting so different? Uh just a lot of questions as a kid because uh my siblings did a lot of laughing while they were intoxicated. My my biological father was an angry, violent person under the influence. Mm. And my mom, somewhere in the middle, um, getting abused, you know, f- physically and verbally abused, and trying to hold on to her children at the same time. I just had no, I think about it now, no clue that it was a substance abuse piece. I thought it was normal. I thought that this is what families do. They argue, they drink, they go out, they get in trouble, and the little young one just sits and watches, front row seat, and usually I become the forgotten child, but I can't say I was the forgotten child, because as bad as things were, my siblings still came around to rub the top of my head and see how I was doing. Um, They just didn't have the time to be a nurturer or go outside and play handball with me. I really was uh, left to myself to go out into the street and find a big brother out there or a big sibling out there. But um, I, I think I was just clueless until outreach. And when, when, you know, sitting in those groups and listening to other kids uh, talk about their situations that were similar to mine and wondering, wow, was I really feeling that and didn't even notice? Identifying feelings, the fears that you're so scared to even identify. It was such a an explosion in my head of identification of feelings. What is that? I'm 13, 14. You want me to identify feelings? That, that's just an, a very difficult process. And, um, you know, Outreach House and the staff there. Uh, kind of became my family. They became my role models as to what should be healthy. And um, I mean, my counselor, Mike, he was like a combination of my angry father and my sensitive mother. He would yell at me in the morning and patch me up after group. <laughs> so, like they, it, they, they took that role on and and really just. I started waking up to how dysfunctional things were in my family, but not unusual. Like I was talking about that white kid from Rochester, because I grew up in a predominantly Hispanic and black neighborhood in Brooklyn. We didn't see white kids unless we crossed over Woodhaven Boulevard and to Queens. And, you know, you think you're so different from them. And this guy from Rochester and I, we had so much, inco- we had the same type of father. We, we had the same type of fears running behind the bed because the old man is breaking something, you know, or being afraid to touch something in the kitchen because the old man might lose his mind. Just being afraid to be a kid. Really, that was uh, a great experience because culturally, too, uh, I learned a, a Italian food, Italian people. And why do these people all sit together at the table at the same time? That's just a little piece of what exposed me to, like uh, the the whole thing of sobriety. Sobriety is just not stopping using; it's lifestyle. It's changes.
3: I think that's, think that's a cool part of life, right? Like that people are different, families are different, so that's awesome. So, so Ray, you transition home, and mom's you know pushing you to take the bus, right? Uh, You still have outreach as a, you know, home and and family. And what else goes on? What is the next, you know, the next years look like, whatever they may have been? Uh,
2: The Army, uh, as soon as I joined, it was 1989, 90. um, I joined to just get away from the neighborhood and the friends, the high school friends. Um, I thought I was going to do some traveling and go to college. Uh, I was really wrong, uh, right out of AIT advanced training, we were shipped to um, Saudi Arabia and we were part of uh, desert storm. And I mean, we did nothing for nine months. And there was a lot of thinking. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of hash. I tried to get away from that. And when I went to Saudi Arabia in the army, there was more drugs and more alcohol exposure than ever before in my entire life. And it was very difficult to stay straight. Um, Many times I just kept writing back home. Um, I was into the Bible a lot back then. Um, I was into uh, spirituality. It It was just keeping me sane to write down things, prayer and believing in the serenity prayer and believing more than ever in that process of stinking thinking. All those things we made fun of, those slogans, you know, I was living by them just to get by the night because, uh, I was scared for my life every night over there. You can't see anything. You can't see in front of you, the enemy. You don't know who the enemy was. And, um, it was a, it was an eye opener. It was, uh, it was the scariest time of my life because, um. I really did feel alone a lot in those foxholes and and uh, writing letters to some of my uh, my people at Outreach. You know, I was still involved with everybody. They kept me going They sent me care packages. And uh, just really, I really got my first taste of what commitment is to sobriety because I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I stayed over there and didn't touch a single substance. Cause, Cause father, everybody, everybody you remain. Oh uh, yeah. It was tough. Impressive. Very, very hard.
0: And I so uh, go step forward to because I'm interested and I want to hear about hear about you as the father and and how your childhood, your you know, being in treatment at an early age. Uh-huh. Your different experiences, how that shaped you as a father, not only as a father, but also how passionate you are. Like we talked about earlier in terms of, you know, helping kids, you know, with addiction and also touch on, you know, your, your tough last few years with, uh, you know, with the custody battle with, uh, oh, your daughter, Brooklyn.
2: Yeah. uh I think my late twenties into my early thirties, I started, uh, know of course we're still growing as adults but i think i i started understanding what addiction what role addiction played and as a young adult it was really more behavioral first and the the substances were there to help you negatively cope so that and that's not everybody's path everybody's path is different and i was beginning to see that you know there may be 30 of us in this group but everyone's got their own different path and and whatever it is addiction abuse or whatever it is and um i started uh uh actually I, i i had my first alcoholic beverage since outreach at age 28 and i thought i relapsed and I needed to go to treatment, and I'm in trouble, and my world's going to collapse. And the next three or four years, I think I spent understanding what that drink meant to me. And, um, you know, I just put in perspective, uh, again, uh, the patterns of my own life, and the lessons I learned at Outreach, and, you know, to learn from that choice, you know, to why did I do that? Why did I decide to do that? And then uh, take that into my adult life and just remain focused and sober in my my head, sober in, in body and spirit. Um, I'm glad that beer didn't lead me down the wrong path. It could have. I took a major chance, uh, but I was able to yeah. lean on the tools I learned at Outreach to to understand that 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 wasn't a good choice. It wasn't for me um and that I just needed to just continue and I was in the field that was the other conflict so I'm in the field and I'm going to crack open a beer and even though that beer was on a saturday or sunday I'm going to come monday and talk to a bunch of kids about drinking and drugging it was a major major yeah. issue for me and I even left the field well not I didn't leave the field but I left the population I went to work with uh, adults on purpose just to get a taste of something else and and a different approach. And uh, Daytop, at the time I was doing some work for Daytop, they were allowing their staff members to drink and it's okay. Now I really was confused. (laughs) I didn't know my place as a committed counselor with a history. And I think the next few years I just – I was bouncing back and forth with it, with it, and what was right, what was wrong, what what was morally right, you know, ethically, and everything like that. And mm-hmm. I I did struggle a little bit there, but I remained in the field up until uh, my last tour I was deployed in uh, in '05, and um, it wasn't a good experience for me what I saw. And uh, officially, I did hit the skids. And I did take a major fall thinking that that one beer many years ago wasn't a big deal. And it turned out to be a major big deal because it led me down that same negative path of the thinking that it would be okay and not taking it serious. Because I think at times I used to laugh at counselors that exaggerated, oh, one beer is okay, could ruin the rest of your life. Take it easy, buddy. It's not the end of the world it can be, it can be, because it doesn't just have to be the substance piece, your mind. Your mind can go down that path way before you make that mistake with the chemical. So um, it was a, a rough couple of years, um, and that experience I had out, and it was I was deployed to Africa. Uh, I didn't come back okay. I actually, uh, I needed some help, and I needed some help with uh, the drinking and i needed some help with the psychiatric piece learning to adapt back home and um in 06 when i was in therapy again and i didn't go near anything i needed to stay straight 100 i ended up having a child and uh i wasn't ready for it and um it was time to grow up and be a man and um the being sober and taking it seriously helped me become a better father there's no doubt about it there's no doubt about it the tools i learned and and, and the belief system and the commitment helped me be a better father uh, or be better prepared to to have a child and um to this day uh that was the greatest day of my life when i found out i was having lily mm-hmm. i mean i really felt not just sober from substances but just as an adult, I did the right thing. I, I I followed through on it. I followed through on the commitment. I followed through on everything. And it, it, no matter how bad I was feeling, um, the support system, the, the, the repetitious, uh, things I learned as a kid, even in outreach still, still affect me today. They still, they still are with me today. And I believe in a lot of those things. And, can't have conversations about a lot of those things because not many people believe in them. But I do. And uh, it's almost now as w- that I'm older, you can't give all that information out to everyone. No one's going to listen. It's almost like you just have to give a little piece to whoever you're talking to to see if that little piece is appropriate for them. It works in counseling and it works with my kids because you got to watch what you say. You got to watch what you present. And not everybody has the same belief system. So um, it it all helped me just become a better person, a better worker, a better boss, because my way wasn't the only way, you know, it it wasn't. But um, uh, getting into the, you know, that piece where I had my daughter and then I was working at Outreach House. And I think between, between, when my daughter was born up until Outreach changed, it was a, a a great time for me because being happy at work, being sober in your mind, and having a little girl was the greatest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Those were the best years of my life. And then I made a decision to have a relationship with a coworker.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go? Uh-oh.
2: Oh, man, let me tell you. I think Jim could tell you some of it. <laughs> um but it, it, it turned out to be a, a really poor decision. Uh, I, I don't regret having my child with this person, but I definitely relapsed through those problems with substances and mentally. And it, it, it lasted for years. I think Jim's aware of those first three or four years for me. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in bad shape. And um I was purposely forgetting all the things I learned. I didn't want to hear it and I'm I mean that's pretty scary at my age to forget the support systems that help you get to where you're at. Um, uh, it was a tough struggle and people like Jim, you know, who, who make it make it clear to you who bring it back to the green surface. Um, you know Jim was one of those people who uh, no matter what was going on, it checked in on me and and, and I could call. And you know you don't have a lot of people like that in this field and in this 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 thing we call addiction. And um, hell, I remember Jim showed up to my sister's funeral. There was two of us there, and Jim shows up. I mean, that meant the world to me. And and Jim to me represents not just friendship, but Jim represents old school giving a damn about another person, mm-hmm. and that really ties into. The whole outreach idea and and people who are real, you know, and really really care. And um, Jim, I always appreciated that. I think I told you that. You know, I it was just, you know, it was very special to me, and I appreciate that. And uh, uh, it's things like that that that's what living a sober life is all about. Those moments come where you believe in something and you stay committed and something like that happens because that was a rough time too i was fighting for my daughter and my sister passed um so um you know we, we 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 try to live our lives the best we can with the tools we're given and we try to make a better life for the children that we have and sobriety and outreach and commitment and friends like jim you know that, that to me that's that's worth the hard work that's worth those lonely nights that's worth those days where we were scared Uh, you can't do this alone. No way. No way.
3: We agree with that. So you're at the point, um, you know, you lose your sister, you're fighting for your daughter, which as Jim mentioned, I definitely want to get into what that was like, where, what year is this? And, and, and you said you had, you had a relapse, right? Where does that, that, and it was three, you know, three or four years of of a tough time. I think where does that bring us up to? Uh, Were you sober when you were fighting fighting for your daughter or not?
2: Uh, When it started, I was. But what happened real quick was that um, I caught the mother using substances and I called CPS for help. And she ended up taking the baby to Connecticut. And I didn't see the baby for months. And it started a downward spiral uh for me being disconnected from my kid and i definitely started drinking a lot and uh i made the mistake of mixing those drinks with my legally prescribed medication all of a sudden became uh illegally abused and it was a tough 2 year run of not being honest with the people close to me uh, staying home uh drinking and uh isolation the complete opposite of what my life was headed for and uh it was a tough time i uh you know i had to think about a a lot of things and uh i don't know exactly what light turned on for me to just stop i think I think if I had to guess, I was just sick and tired of being so miserable. And um, stopped feeling sorry for myself because uh, there were plenty of people out there checking on me and seeing how I was doing and seeing if I saw my daughter. And um, I was my own worst enemy. So the scary piece of that is that with all the tools and the good experience that happened in my life to help me be a better person or a person who's sober, I still made a poor decision. And that's how scary this addiction piece is.
0: Mm-hmm. You
3: can
2: be as prepared as you want, doesn't matter. It could happen to anyone at any time. And uh, I was lucky to have, uh, I guess I was just scared to lose my other daughter. My, young, my oldest daughter started noticing how distant I was. And uh, she had said something to me when I was fighting for Brooklyn. She goes, dad, It feels like you're not my daddy anymore. And, uh, you know, I ran into the next room, put my head in a pillow, and I cried like a five-year-old kid. And uh, I spoke to the baby's mother, who I don't really talk to. I reached out. We talked. And it was time for Ray to get some help. And it it was like starting all over again. And uh, that was uh, almost a year and a half ago, two years ago. That I just uh, I just decided if I'm gonna do this fight, it has to be it has to be with a sober mind, body, and spirit, and reconnecting with friends and going back out there and just uh, you know I have a lot to live for. My two little girls and uh, things have turned out really better than what they were. I mean, she's very close to coming home permanently. Uh, I got rid of the department. Uh, it started this whole campaign for me of parental rights you know speaking at the legislative house and believing in something again and to me uh the strongest thing in my life is my love for my daughters so uh, i reconnected with that that ray who who can commit who believes in something and wants to live and i don't want to drink myself to a grave or pop some pills and maybe overdose like the so many other clients we've seen and people in our lives i just didn't want to do that and um, i really don't remember exactly what but i think it was when my daughter said i'm not a daddy anymore and uh, i mean that has led me to today where um i definitely feel healthier uh, i have a cause i see my daughters more and the love for my children was well worth whatever i had to go through to understand that life is worth it sobriety is worth it my kids are worth it and uh even doing this today it just brings up so many emotions you know i think i could talk for 10 hours if you left me now that i'm in touch i'm in touch yeah. with those emotions as i'm talking to you right now uh and i'm just reliving some of those times and uh i'm getting a little choked up it's okay uh, you know because uh i think that was the path i had to take to to understand that my life was worth saving
3: yeah i couldn't agree more i mean you have a truly amazing and beautiful story I, from from all of this what i've taken from your story is that the reason why you would relapse was the the loss in was forgetting that you had something to believe in yeah and every time you, you reinvented yourself and found something to believe in, you felt it was worth it to get sober. You felt you were worth it, not just you, but the people surrounding you, the gym, the gym grants, your daughters, um, you know, the, the belief in some sort of system for a long time, maybe it was outreach. It seems that it has shifted. And now, you know, for parental rights and all of these, you know, these speaking engagements and speaking before the legislator and all those things, you have a belief. So, I mean, the one recommendation I can make uh, to you and, you know, the listeners out there is don't lose sight. Don't forget and don't lose the fact that you're, you're worth it and that you have something to believe in. Right. Absolutely. I mean, what a phenomenal episode. Everybody out there should understand that you know Ray Ortiz doesn't give up right he's no uh, he's in his fight to the end and i speak to people that you know i tried to help 5 years ago and they're coming back around now to reach out to me and i say you know if one thing i've showed you is that i could be consistent and that's what recovery takes it takes showing up every day to make sure that you're dealing with life on life's terms and you're not forgetting how things were in the past and how bad they could get so um i mean you have a beautiful story i appreciate you being on jim is there anything you want to add to this
0: appreciate you buddy and uh thanks again and thanks for sharing and and letting us letting us into your life thank
2: you man it was my pleasure i appreciate it guys thank you, you too.
3: take care right
2: take care guys
0: All right, hopefully, uh, just
3: me and you, bud.
0: We're back. Ray's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was getting emotional, and then once he started getting emotional, that uh, that was getting getting, getting you made. more emotional. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, no,
3: um, I love that about you. I, I think uh, Ray was very passionate about his story, absolutely incredible, his relationship and commitment to outreach, being a resident, getting out, keeping in touch throughout deployments throughout his life, eventually becoming a counselor, moving up in the ranks of outreach and, you know, really really being on the other end as a counselor of teaching these kids and, and giving them his experience. Right. Um yeah.
0: and I mean the the biggest the biggest thing for me in terms of in terms of The lesson, you know, from a listener's point of view with him, that's how that's how powerful this disease is. And that's how significant self-discipline and doing the work on a daily basis, because if he can stay clean and sober over in freaking, you know, over in uh, wartime and staying clean and sober, you know, on a on a football team and then you lose your way you disconnect from the tools you disconnect from that that way of life that discipline of doing the work on a daily basis of what we're taught you know in terms of one day at a time that's how that's how you know they talk about the insidiousness of the disease and dropping your guard you know sometimes it takes one second one minute whatever and and uh, you know, and he he dropped his guard, he lost his way, you know, however you want to describe it. And then and then to go back, and that's the other, you know, the other beautiful thing about him is yes, he lost his way. Yes, he fell back, you know, into his addiction, but then he fought his way back because he he remembered what it took and he reconnected to to everything that that got him there in the first place and kept him there, you know, all those years. So without even realizing it, perfect, you know, perfect, uh, fits perfectly into our message here in terms of, you know, hope, hope and inspiration and never giving up. So, yeah, beautiful, uh, awesome. And even even knowing him, you know, as much as I do and as long as I have, it's always cool to even hear things that I didn't know and, and, and from a different perspective.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I think, um, you know, this episode uh, gave us the possibility and option for people for, you know, an adolescent program called Outreach House 2, which I'm sure could be Googled and, and, you know, figured out if if a family needed that. Also, it, it made us realize that you can never give up. You're always worth it. And, you know, the fight is worth it. And don't forget about that. Right. So
0: yeah, I want to actually get get just say one more thing on that in terms of. Fighting, yeah, sure. You know, and and, you know, Ray, Ray Ortiz is on on Facebook and, and through his through his uh, challenge with with uh, getting his daughter back, you know, he created not only, you know, through his own already existing support group, uh, but, you know, a support and following on Facebook, you know, to support him in his fight and now like he mentioned he's his his drive his passion to fight and to stand for others has been reignited and he's going to be now you know fighting for the youth you know in Brentwood and probably beyond that because of you know we'll we'll probably get into it more or he'll be he'll be you know putting it out there himself but there's there's these youth programs you know through sports that are that that are non-existent they've lost funding and they've you know and for many reasons you know many different school districts have have you know are are experiencing that so the the fight for others that feeds us so like with you the the fight you know for addiction for the addict for the family and you know through your detox and you know and your sober homes and you know through recovery media me, you know, fighting for, you know, through Jim Grant coaching, fighting for, you know, the father and and anybody that's connected to the father, which ultimately is me fighting for the children involved in that. That's the thing that I also learned through my my personal development workshops and trainings is my volunteering and giving back and supporting the adult has them become like, like Ray mentioned, a better man, a better father, because we carry around all these past experiences that affect us in our lives. And a lot of us try and avoid it in different ways. Sometimes it's alcohol and drugs. Other times it's in, in behavior and not even realizing. So any sort of reaching out for support and because we all need support, you know, we all need somebody to fight for us until we can fight for ourselves. So for everybody out there, whether it's Jim Grant coaching, whether it's Ray Ortiz, whether it's Luai Okona, find somebody to talk to, to get support, to get the stuff out, to to reach out, to let people know what you need, because there is support everywhere. And there is somebody always willing to fight for you until you can fight for yourself.
3: Beautifully said, Jim. Thanks so much. And with that, we will conclude this episode. This is another phenomenal episode of Recovery Media Podcast. We can be found on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. YouTube channel is coming. And we love you guys. If you need us, you could always reach out to us. We're always available. And have a great day.
0: Have a great day, everybody.
1: You can find us on social media at The Recovery Media Podcast. And of course, download, rate, review, and subscribe wherever great podcasts are found.